to John chapter 15 this morning. John 15. Our sermon is going to be taken from verse 7, though uh, we will jump around a little bit in the book of John. And so if you want to find that, you'll find that on page 901 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And it's John 15 and verse 7. As we consider this wonderful teaching of our Lord, as we begin our annual week of prayer today, we already had a wonderful time this morning as a uh, during our Sunday school hour, uh, most of us gathered here together and had just a powerful time of beseeching the Lord in prayer. And I believe God is already doing a great work in our hearts and trust He will. And so I'm delighted to see what He'll do in us through His Word this morning. So consider John 15, verse 7. Hear now the Word of God. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, this and many other great promises in regard to prayer spoken from the very mouth of our Lord. And with such great promises, should we therefore not be a praying people? And so help us even now as we consider our Lord's teaching, that it might do a great work in our lives, that you would indeed give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to obey. So we pray this for your glory and our great gain, in Christ's name, amen. Willis Hotchkiss was a missionary in Nigeria for about 40 years. On one particular event, he was late for a service in a rural village, and, and as he was on his way, he came to a field, an open field. Now, in this part of Nigeria, there was a, a rule that no one should ever cross a large open space for fear of a, of a stampede of wild animals. Instead, you're to take the path along in the trees. But Hotchkiss was late, and he saw that the, clearly the quickest quickest way across was to go through the plain, and so he started out. He made his way about halfway through the field when he began to hear a thunderous noise and looked up on the horizon and saw a herd of rhinoceros charging right for him. He realized that there was no way to go. There were so many of them, so he simply uh, knelt down in the middle of that field, clasped his Bible to his chest, and prayed the simple prayer, Lord, here I come. Like an eternity passed as the thunder grew louder and louder and then eventually faded into the distance. And when all was quiet, Hotchkiss opened his eyes, rose from where he was kneeling, and he he looked around and saw that he was standing in the the midst of this plain marked with the footprints of over a hundred rhino alive and unharmed. Years later, Hotchkiss had a couple from, a supporting couple from Ohio out in Nigeria visiting him. And as they talked, the husband said to him that I had the most unusual experience concerning you one night. In fact, I was awoken suddenly in the middle of the night with an irresistible urge to pray for you. And so I did, committing you to God's safekeeping. Hotchkiss asked this man if he remembered when. The man said, yes, it made such an impact upon me, I wrote it down in my Bible. 
And when they compared the times, it was discovered that it was on the same day, at the same hour, that Hotchkiss had been spared on that Nigerian plane. I believe that God answers prayer. I believe that not only from my own experience and the experience of those who have shared with me, I believe it because of what the Lord has told me. We see that, of course, here in the text before us, but even in in the larger passage here in John 14, John 14 through John 16, you may know is often referred to as the farewell discourse. It's uh, uh, probably the largest um, time of teaching that Jesus gives other than the Sermon on the Mount, and it's on the eve of his crucifixion. So you think, okay, Jesus is about to die. What is it that he will gather his apostles together and teach them? And he teaches them many things, certainly, but there is one thing that he continually returns to. And it is this idea of prayer. So note, for instance, in John 14, and verse 13, the Lord says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You flip over to John 15, you note in the second half, of verse 16, he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And again in John 16, here in verse 23, the Lord says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You put all these promises together, and what you see is Jesus says, this I will do, I will do it, it will be done for you, he may give it to you, he will give it to you, and you will receive. You think, what's Jesus trying to do here? Why such amazing promises? Why does he unfold this for his apostles, and indeed for us even now? Well, certainly one answer to that is because it's true, right? That, That God is a cheerful giver. And he loves to give in answer to our prayers. It's Wesley Duell who wrote in his wonderful little book, When God has a people who prevail in prayer, there is no limit to what God will do. It's true. God answers prayers. But doesn't it seem to you that Jesus is trying to here create a certain type of people? A praying people? And so again and again, he has these outlandish and almost unbelievable offers in prayer to create a praying people like Jesus. In fact, when we finish the farewell discourse, we come to John 17. And you may know that John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the longest recording prayer of Jesus in all of Scripture. Of course, that's not the only time Jesus prayed, is it? He was praying when he was baptized. Praying during the 40 days of temptation. He prayed after his healing crusades. He prayed all night before he selected the 12. He prayed before he fed the 5,000 and again before he fed the 4,000. He prayed when he spoke to the Jewish leaders. He was praying when the 72 returned to him on mission. He was alone praying before he walked on water. He prayed while he healed the deaf man. He, he prayed before Peter confessed him as the Christ. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what was he doing? He was praying. When they asked him to teach him to pray, it was because he was praying. He prayed at Lazarus' tomb. He prayed when he laid hands on the little children. He prayed after the triumphal entry. He prayed at the Lord's Supper. He said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan's coming after you, but I have what? Prayed for you. 
he, he prayed the high priestly prayer here in John. And then even after that, he went up to the garden. And what did he do there? Not once, not twice, but three times. He prays before the Lord. They pin him to a cross. And what does he do? We find him praying again and again. Do we not? And then... After he's raised from the dead, he is praying with his disciples. The Bible says he is praying while he ascended into heaven. And by the way, he is still praying. For he lives to make intercession for you. We might think Luke 15 verse 16 is a summary of the life of Jesus. He would withdraw, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus was a man of prayer. I believe he was because he believed that he could not live the life in which God had called him to live without the Father's aid, without the Father's help. What about us? Do you believe you can live the life that God has called you to live without his help? And don't be so quick to answer. Because I think the answer is found in your prayers your devotion to prayer, your commitment to prayer. As Paul Miller, who many of you have read his book on prayer, he estimates from his prayer seminars that 90% of Christians don't have any meaningful daily prayer. So I'm sure there are many here would identify with that. I mean, how many have said, listen, I'm going to pray for you in this, and sometime later they come up to you and say, well, I'm so thank, thanks for praying for me. Everything's kind of, uh, you know, worked its way out. And you're thinking, well, I hope someone prayed, because I, I didn't. I, I forgot. I, I've read of a, of a praying mother whose pastor asked her son after church, does your mother pray with you every night? He said, yes, sir. And the pastor pushed a little bit and said, well, what does she say? In which the little boy responded, thank God he's in bed. <laughs> I think Carson is right when he writes, we've become so good at other things, we've forgotten how to pray. We have learned how to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves in the media, develop evangelistic strategies, administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. And so once again, the elders call Hamilton Baptist Church to a week of prayer. That we might renew our dependence upon God, that we might renew our desperation with God. As we see this great promise here in John 15 and verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, Jesus is telling us here, isn't he, first of all, how to have effective prayer. Effective prayer. There are two halves in this verse. You'll note the first half has to do with the word. The second half has to do with prayer. Those two halves are connected. That is, the first is the condition for the second. If the words of Christ abide in you, then, he says, you will pray with wonderful and effective power. So the question that rises is why? What is the connection between the abiding word of God in us and the effectiveness of prayer. And I think there are probably many answers to that question. We might say that the word of God will sanctify us. You know, Jesus will pray in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. You know what he says? Your, what is it? Word is truth. 
Right? So the word sanctifies us. It makes us more like God, more like Jesus. And I, to be honest, I think God is more inclined to answer the request of those who are walking in fellowship with him. Just like you as parents, you're more inclined to answer the request of your children who are obedient and, and, and submissive than you are those who are rebellious and wayward. And we might also say that the abiding word of God increases faith in us. And faith seems to be a central component in prayer. And so as we abide in God's word, we begin to believe God more fully and completely, and that we'll find that our prayers are more effective. And yet what I think is, is most profound and most impactful as to why the word of God will lead to effective prayers is that the abiding word of God, I believe, will actually change your prayers. I think it will change your desires, change the things you long for. See, typically, think about what is it that we pray for? What is it we ask for? Well, we ask for for health concerns, certainly, don't we? And we pray for jobs, and we pray for safe travels. We pray for happy marriages and working cars and nice retirements and and all the rest. I was uh, this week taking a couple of my kids to the, the city council meeting on Tuesday night. And if you've been up to our house, we live, uh, we live up on the mountain just over the way, and we're down a gravel road about a mile long, and it's, it's downhill to our house. And when we got that snowstorm a couple weeks ago, well, that just got, became a sheet of ice for us there up on the mountain. And so what we do in order to leave the house is we get to the bottom of the hill, put it in first gear, turn on the four-wheel drive, and put the accelerator to the floor. And our tires spin like this, but the car just kind of moseys its way up the mountain as it spins to the left and spins to the right. And you're just trying to keep it out of the ditch while your children are saying, yeah, Dad, go! It's a lot of fun. Well, Tuesday night, I repeated the ritual. I hit the gas pedal, made it away halfway up the mountain, and then my wheels lost complete traction. And though they were spinning as fast as they could going forward, the truck was now sliding backwards down the hill. And my children would testify, Daddy prayed. Right? <laughs> Daddy prayed something real spiritual. I think it went something like, Lord Jesus, help. Right? These are the things we pray for. And there's nothing wrong, I think, in praying for them. We should pray for these things. But please understand, when we pray for those type of things, we're praying for the same things that an unbeliever would pray for if they prayed. It's it's no indication, if that's all we pray for, that there's been, been any significant change in our hearts. It's John Piper, who in his wonderful book, When I Don't Desire God, writes, Prayer is the revealer of the heart. What a person prays for shows the spiritual condition of his heart. If we do not pray for spiritual things, then probably it is because we do not desire these things. But my friends, when we abide in the word, your heart will change. Your desires will change. Your prayers will change. You still pray for health. You still pray for marriages and jobs and journeys, but you pray for them differently. You pray for them that, that, uh, that Christ will be exalted even in the midst of this. So when you're praying for someone who is sick, you don't just pray for their healing, do you? You pray that they would be faithful to God in the midst of the sickness. That, 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 that the sickness wouldn't rob their joy in Jesus. That in fact through the sickness they would draw close to the Lord and experience his presence in new and powerful ways. They would be a good steward of the opportunities that the sickness brings to them. In order to testify to, what God, uh, to, to others about what God has done in their lives. Right? We still pray for jobs, but we just 
don't pray that we would get the raise or the promotion. We pray that our job would help people and that we pray that what we do would honor God and that we have an opportunity to love our co-workers in some way that, that exemplifies the love in which we have received in Jesus. In other words, we begin to pray like the early Christians who had amazing power in prayer. When they ask God to exalt his name and extend his kingdom and enhance their knowledge of his love, when they, they pray, God, send your Holy Spirit, save unbelievers, strengthen the church, they pray that the, their faith would persevere, they will have hope in trial, they would have endurance in temptation, that they would indeed love what is good. You see, as you abide in the word, your heart begins to change so that you begin to love what God loves. And then you ask for the things that he loves, you begin to ask according to his will. And then we see the answers come rolling in. Even as we consider this morning, in fact, our scripture memory for this week, this week of prayer in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It's all about asking according to his will. The, the opposite passage is James 4 and verse 3. You have not, you ask and, and you do not receive because you ask what, why? With the wrong motives that you may spend it upon your own pleasure. In other words, if all we're doing is telling God I want this and I want that over here, I don't really care about your name, I don't really care about my neighbor, I don't really care about your kingdom, give me this, give me this, I just want that, it's not you that I adore, well we're just, God becomes some type of cosmic pinata and prayer is the, the stick in which you beat him with in order that you might get your sweet things. And God's not inclined to answer those prayers, my friend. He will answer the prayers that are according to his will. You see, if you want to have effective prayer, then you and I need to make sure that, that our desires are getting in alignment with God's desires. We do that through the word. One pastor says the key to praying with power is to become the kind of person who does not use God for our ends, but are utterly devoted to being used for his ends. I think we notice this. You notice when Paul prays for his friends, he seems to never pray for their jobs, right, or, or their retirement. And, and, and I'm sure Paul prayed for those things. Paul, Paul healed people. Paul's very, very interested in health and, and things like that. I don't want to dismiss that. But you see when he's praying, he's praying that, that God would give them eyes to see God's power and that God would make them know God's love and, and that their faith would become transforming and triumphant. Right? This is what he prayed for. Now, do they need jobs and need health? Of course they did. But that's not the focus of his prayers. See, what we believe is that, that happiness and, and the, 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 the good life comes from pleasant circumstances around us. So the things around us. And so if this happens and this happens and this thing over here happens, then I'll be happy and then life will be going okay. And so what we, we become obsessed with, therefore, changing the circumstances in our lives. I get it. I'm like it just as much as you are. And so I just want these things to be different around me and we'll use prayer in order to get it. But Paul seems to believe that what we really need is not a change of the things around us, but a change on the things from within us. That God needs to change not our circumstances, but us. Because the real problem in our life is not I don't have that or this. The real problem is I don't trust God. The real problem is I don't treasure God. The real problem is I don't sense God's presence. Which is why Paul's always praying that God would change them. Reminds me of a story I read some time ago told by Peter Lewis of a Chinese pastor in a labor camp for his faith. 
And the guards would punish him whenever he prayed or sang. In fact, out of their malice to him, um, they made him have to clean the camp latrine every day. And so all the waste in which all the soldier, uh, guards and all the prisoners accumulated, this pastor every, every morning would have to take out all that excrement and he would scatter it on the fields as fertilizer. The smell and the work was so foul that the guards would withdraw and give him plenty of space enabling him to do what? Pray and sing. And for this reason, this Chinese pastor said he came to love latrine duty because of the communion that he could openly enjoy with the Lord. The dunghill became his garden, and he sang, I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still on the roses, for he walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. You see, his heart, the circumstances had not changed in his life, but it was his heart that had. See, I think quite often the reason that we find ourselves full of worry and bent out of shape and bitter and angry and depressed and all the rest is we often value something more than what we've received already in God. And we take our eyes off the great work in which God has already done in our lives and what he's already promised for us, and we think about this little thing and this thing over here and this thing over here that seems to be a little annoying to us. It's like Tim Keller says, we're, we're a five-year-old with a broken truck. All right, you have a five-year-old, and his broken truck, is, his toy truck is broken. He's sad. Well, just imagine, if you will, that, that you go to the, your five-year-old son with his broken truck, and you say, honey, um, I have some news for you. We had a great-great-uncle that we didn't even know about, and he died, and he left you $20 million. So how does the child respond? $20 million. I mean, that's incredible. Who cares about this silly truck? Not any five-year-old I know, right? The five-year-old says, I don't, I don't care about $20 million. I want my truck fixed, and I'm not going to be happy in my, until my truck is fixed. You see, by the way, that's irrational, and it is because the child doesn't know the value of $20 million. He can't. He's five. But my friends, how often are you and I were like that five-year-old? Right? If this five-year-old could grasp the value of $20 million, he would say, I don't care about this truck. I could buy 100 million trucks. I don't even care. He'd be more than happy, right? We're like the child. You understand that you have Christ as your Savior. You have been saved, my brothers and sisters in Christ, from a Christless eternity in torment. You have been welcomed into his family, adopted as sons and daughters. He has therefore placed his spirit within you, who resides in you this very moment. God is in control of every event in your life and is utterly committed to bringing about your good, that he has placed you in his kingdom, you will one day inherit the world, Will you will rule there with the celestial beings at Christ's side over all this new creation. And all we are worried about is this little thing over here. What about this thing? Right? Your financial problems are destroying your happiness and your job because you're, I mean, all due respect, you're like a five-year-old child. And so am I. We need to grow up. How do we do it? We abide in the Word. And the Word of God shows us reality. It changes our hearts. And we begin to pray not just for the broken trucks in our life, but that we would come to understand the love of Christ more fully. And God says, I'll answer that prayer. I'll answer that prayer. The Word changes our heart. Then we ask for 
whatever your new heart wishes, and it will be given to you. Now, even saying this, it's somewhat confusing for some, because there are some here who say, well, I feel like I'm abiding in God's word, and I feel like my prayers are God-oriented, but I still don't feel like he's answering my prayers. So what do we do with unanswered prayers? It's Jesus saying here that God will give us anything we want. Well, consider the case of Paul. Remember Paul, three times he prayed for that thorn to remove, be removed from his flesh. Right? There was a thorn in my flesh. I prayed well, not once, twice, three times God removed this thorn. My question for you, uh, trick question just so you know, uh, was Paul's prayer answered? This is prayer answered. Please remove this thorn from my side. And you might say, no, the prayer wasn't answered. God didn't remove the thorn. And I think you'd be right. But then you might also say, well, yes, he did answer the prayer because God said, I'm going to give you grace in the midst of this this thorny affliction to endure it. So God did hear Paul, and he did respond to Paul's prayer, not by giving Paul what he requested, but by what Paul truly needed. And at the end, what did Paul do? He delighted far more in what God gave them uh, as opposed to what he was asking for. In fact, he, he writes, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, power is made perfect in weakness. Right? There's my answer. I'm going to give you more grace. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, of the thorns in my flesh, if you will, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'll take Christ any day over, over this silly thing I was asking for. So did, Paul give, did God give Paul what, what he wanted? Well, I would say, yes, he did, even though he didn't give him his specific request. You see, my friends, prayer is a powerful tool, isn't it? You know, if God just answered everything we said, we would do a lot of damage, I think. My, 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 as I'm sure I shared with you before, my sons uh, have BB guns. Uh, I remember when Gideon was seven, he got his own, own BB gun, and uh, one of the things, one of the kind of the rules for mom, if we give the boys BB guns, um, you have to make sure there's a safety on the BB gun, right? Because, um, the, the, you know, there are sisters around and, and there's me around and I, I don't need a bullet in the back of the head or anything like that. And so we make sure there's a safety on the, on the BB gun. Well, I think God's done this in prayer. I think God's put a, put a little safety on, on the weapon of prayer, that he's not going to give you something that's bad for you. He's not going to give you something that derails his plan for you. I mean, and what, what, if, what if Gideon, you know, who's, who's now 10 years old, and he says, Dad, you know, I really like this BB gun, um, but, uh, you know, I, I've, I saw your shotgun, and I, I'd really like one of those. You know, I'm 10 years old. Can I have a shotgun now? Well, how do I respond to that? Well, with a great deal of pride, of course, right? <laughs> that a boy, I've taught him well, okay? But, um, but, uh, but no, no. You, you don't, honey, you're, you're, you're too little for a shotgun. But I, but I kind of understand what you want. You want adventure, right? I, I understand what you, let's go outside and blow some things up. Well, how's that sound, buddy? Right? Right? And so I'm not going to give you what you're asking for, but as a good dad, I want to give you what you're after. Paul says, remove the thorn from me, and God says, what if instead I let you experience overwhelming grace and power and my presence in the midst of the affliction? 
Jesus goes to Gethsemane. He prays, God, remove this cup from me. You know, the Bible writes in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's referring to Gethsemane. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt. And he was hurt. He said, remove this cup from me. And the writer of Hebrews said, God heard that prayer. Not by giving him the specific request, but ultimately what was good for him. God will not give you the wrong thing. He will instead respond to your need. And so you will pastor, why doesn't God answer my heartfelt, persevering prayer? And, and, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know in your life what's going on and why God doesn't answer what you continue to ask him for. But this I know. You are a child, and he is your father. And children ask for things every day. My children do at least almost every hour, right? For things that they think are good for them, which are not. And we're continually redirecting them. No, you, you know, not, not ice cream for breakfast, but how about, you know, uh, uh, cereal, right? We're constantly redirecting them. And so uh, w- when we redirect our children, how do they respond? No, you can't have this. How about this over here? Well, do they respond, okay, Father. I recognize I'm a child and you're the Father and you're far wiser than I am. And so I, I gladly submit to uh, your decision in my life. Well, <laughs> the, you know, the little ones, they don't. They, you know, our one-year-old throws a fit, doesn't she? Um, but as they get older... Yeah, I think, I think a little of that grows in them. Okay, I want this, but you're in charge. God put you in charge for a reason, so I, so I submit to you. See, when God says no to you, you could respond in one of two ways. You could say, okay, wait a second. He loves me. He demonstrates that to me clearly by putting his son on the cross for me. And so I'm going to trust him, even though I don't understand. makes no sense to me why I can't have this, why this is not for my good and for his good. But he is my father, and I trust him. His children can't understand at times. We don't have the ability to understand. We don't know what God is doing. How do you explain the dangers of electricity to a two-year-old who wants to put the, you know, the, the knife in the outlet? You can't. They're two. But you do pull their hand away in order to protect them, though that seems like the most fun thing in the world is to shove that thing in there and see what happens, right? And we're like that. And so you can say, okay, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. You're God, I'm not, and so I submit myself to you. Or option number two is you could get angry and throw a fit. Right? And when you throw a fit, by the way, God will not only not give you what you ask for, he won't even get you, give you what you need. Right? So I say to Gideon, no, you can't have a shotgun, but let's go for a hike. I'm not going to give him what he wants. I'm going to try to give him what he's after. But if he throws a fit... I can't even respond to the need anymore, right? You get no shotgun and no hike. See, if you will not trust him when he says, not that, how about this over here, then you don't get either. You take yourself out of the place where God will bless you. And uh, I, I understand it, if you've lived long enough, you've been disappointed in prayer, haven't you? You've prayed for this and you haven't received that and we've wanted that and we prayed for that. How do you respond? Do you know the children that are closest to the Father's heart are those who know their children? They're the ones who say, okay, I've seen how much you love me. You've put your son on the cross for me. I trust you. And, and you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to explain. I don't get it. 
but I'm going to trust you. So there's so much I don't understand about what you're doing. This thorn in the flesh is miserable. It's miserable. But I feel your presence. And I trust you know what you're doing. So how do you become the child who trusts? Well, my friends, I know no better way than abiding in the word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing. And hearing, what is it? The word of Christ. Uh, I think if you realize that he'll meet your needs in prayer, maybe not your actual request, there will be joy in that knowledge. It's why Jesus links prayer with joy. Consider thirdly the results of prayer. Results of prayer. There are many results of prayer, of course, but let me just point out two here in the farewell discourse. Number one, that prayer leads to joy. You see that there in John 16 and verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. So, my brothers and sisters, do you want joy? Do you want fullness of joy? That's, that's what it says. It's right off the page. Then pray. Prayer leads to joy. I think it does so because it, it brings God's presence. And the Bible says there is fullness of joy in his right hand. We draw close to God. We share our hearts with him. We rejoice in what he's done. You find your heart um, growing in joy. But even beyond that, prayer brings God's blessings. That's what Jesus is arguing here in verse 24. He says, ask, you will receive. And when you receive, you will get God's blessings. Your joy may be full. Right? You'll have the joy of seeing God work in your life. you have the joy of seeing God work in your church. You'll have the joy of God, seeing God work in your family through prayer. Right? You, 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 you have not because you ask not. And you have no joy, if I might add, because you ask not. Prayerlessness will lead to joylessness. Jesus says the key to joy here is by knowing who you are and coming to, to the Father in my name in prayer. Prayer leads to joy, but we also see that prayer glorifies God. Now turn over to John 14, here still in the farewell discourse, Jesus teaching on prayer. He says here in verse 13, isn't it, that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? Not that you may be full of joy, but here he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The Father may be glorified in the Son. Again in 15, verse 7, you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Prayer glorifies the Father because it puts you in the position of need and puts God in the position of benefactor. You get that? Who's glorified? The one in need or the one who meets the need out of their abundance? To the giver goes the glory. And prayer is where we find ourselves. We say, God, I need this. I need you to help me here and he, we receive the help, and he receives the glory, which is why he delights in prayer. You know, Proverbs 15, verse 8 says, the prayer of the upright is his delight. Is that not interesting? The prayer of the upright is his delight. He not only invites us to ask from him, he delights to be asked. Because when he is asked, he's seen as the source of all blessings, and he loves to magnify to us his grace in answering us. So you see, we're not forced to choose, are we? It's not, do I seek after God's glory or my joy? No, prayer brings them together. 
prayer seeks our joy in receiving and prayer seeks God's glory by treating him as the great supplier of all our needs. Ask and you will receive that my Father may be glorified and that your joy may be full. May we therefore be, as Hamilton Baptist Church, a people of joy-filled, God-glorifying prayers. And we might devote ourselves to prayer as the first church did as we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And again in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 6 verse 4. The apostles devoted themselves to prayer. Romans 12 verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Persevere in tribulation. Be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. I like that little phrase, keeping alert in prayer. In other words, I think Paul's saying, hey, be devoted to prayer, but you need to be alert. You need to do what you must do to make sure that you maintain this devotion to prayer. And so therefore, that being the case, may I offer you some uninspired strategies for prayer. Strategies for prayer. Because I don't think being devoted to prayer is going to happen on accident. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're going to grow... spiritually uh, uh, on on accident. You're not going to seek God by just trying to cram him into some corner of your day. I think you need a plan, right? If you want to go on vacation, what do you do? You you, you plan it. That doesn't happen by accident, right? If if there is no plan, you just sit on the couch and watch TV. So Carson is right. Once again, he says, much praying is not done because we don't plan to pray. We don't drift into spiritual life. We will not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. And so we've already covered why to pray. I hope that's clear to you. What about when? When? Well, I would suggest to you that it would be wise to schedule when you'll pray. That you have an appointment as to when you're going to pray that day. And you say, listen, someone wants to meet at that time. You say, sorry, I got an appointment with this guy named Jesus. And we're going to talk together. Or we're going to pray. I can't meet. And morning might be a great time. I'll, I do note that Mark 1 verse 35 it says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, got alone, and what? He prayed. Every day seems to be a battle to me. At least it is in my life. I think it's probably best to go on offense. You know, strike the first blow early in the morning and uh, seek the Lord in prayer. Maybe you want to pray in the evening. Maybe you pray, want to pray before bedtime. For a while, I, I had an agreement with a friend that we prayed for five minutes. Not the only time we prayed, but for five minutes every day at noon. So noon hit, what did we do? We, pr- we didn't call each other. We just held each other accountable. We prayed. And there were times when I was driving in the car, noon hits, my phone starts dinging me, I pull over because it's time to pray there. If that's you saw me on the side of the road, I wasn't stranded, I was praying, right? And I'll tell you, if you spend five minutes, at least I noticed this, you spend five minutes in the middle of your day just kind of reorienting your heart back to God, you'll find a great deal of peace in, uh, for the rest of the afternoon. You'll find a great deal of clarity as to what God wants you to do. I think you, you need a plan. I often pray before I leave work in the car, certainly pray as I'm sitting out in our parking pad before I come home, before I start second shift, right? I, I'm tired, I'm cranky, and there are, what, nine other people in that house that are going to need a daddy and a husband, and so here I go, and I, I need help, I'm praying. You need to schedule when? I think it's wise to schedule that. Maybe you want to think about where to pray, right? Because if you, you're going to want to get in the Word and pray for more than a few minutes, it might be helpful to have a sacred place, Right? It might be helpful to have a place of solitude. 
which is, is increasingly difficult in my house, right? But uh, you have to labor for that. Jesus seemed to want to get alone to be with God. Maybe you need to come up with a how, a strategy, how it is you are. Are you going to pray, right, to keep you from just spinning your wheels? Uh, Josh walked us through the Acts model this morning. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplications, a wonderful model. The Lord's prayer model. Some people just kind of use the Lord's prayer to prompt them to pray, and they work through their prayers. There's many different ways in which we can pray as we work through these, um, these strategies to prayer. Lastly, what should we pray? What? Well, I think if you abide in the Word, you're going to let the Word of God guide you. So I would suggest to you, I think there's perhaps no better way to do this is to read a verse and then respond to God. And then read another verse and then talk to God about it. And you have a conversation with Him. So you know, well, we're going to get back to Genesis one of these days. And I've, I've been swimming in Genesis these days. And I, I've been so blessed by God calling Abraham in, in, in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to bless you so that I might bless others. And so um, that's informed my prayers deeply. I, I drop my, my daughter off in high school in the morning. I grab her hand and she'll testify. Daddy's been praying the same thing recently. And the prayer has been, God, will you bless my daughter Anastasia so that she might be a blessing to others? Right, So that word is informing my prayers. Or I see Abram fleeing down to Egypt because of a famine, and he misses God in, in these terrible circumstances. I'm praying, God, give me eyes to see you above the circumstances. Or he gives all his spoils to the king of Sodom. And I've been praying, God, free me from the love of money. Free me from greed and covetousness. Right? And we see this in Scripture. In fact, in Genesis 18, verse 14, I, I've even memorized that verse. It says, is anything too hard for God? Right? And I've been using that. The other night I was lying in bed. Allegra says, what are, you, what are you thinking about? And I said, I'm thinking, is anything too hard for God? And I was praying, I was praying for my brother Craig Sweeney there. I said, God, is anything too hard for you? Nothing's too hard. His cancer's not too hard for you. Take that cancer from him. Work in his life. Draw him close to you. I think about my foster daughter, and, I, and it looks like there's a, a swirl of injustice around her. And I'm thinking Genesis 18, 14. God, is anything too hard for you? Will you not be her shield and her fortress and her protector? And you take the word of God, and you say, God, I want to talk to you about what you're teaching me. In fact, there's this wonderful little book. We have a stack of them out there. I get no commission on these, by the way, in case you're wondering. This is called Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. I read it this week. It took me an hour, okay? This is not a big commitment, and it's already impacting my life. And I, I would suggest if you can uh, get one of those books out there, I, I, think, I think you will. You, listen, if we try to devote ourselves to prayer, you, we're going to find that, at least I find, I don't have the ability to offer God-centered, Christ-exalting prayers that God is inclined to answer without using his word to guide me. This little book is so helpful in that. My encouragement for us, even as we begin this prayer week, is that we would, so maybe this afternoon, you take 10 minutes and get alone with God and say, God, what do you want from me in regard to prayer? And that maybe you would set set a new ambition for you. Maybe just through this week, a new venture And you would think, okay, God, how can I participate in the many meetings we have of prayer this week or the prayer guide that was sent out on Wednesday? And that you would get in God's word and listen to him and converse to him in praying. And as you study God's word, do you know what you're going to discover over and over again? I don't care if you're in Genesis or John. You're going to discover that there is a God who loves you. So much that he would send his son down to this world and he would be nailed to a cross. And they're dying a death that he doesn't deserve, but that I do. 
And that he would heap all my countless sin upon him and say, Stephen, I will be punished for you. In fact, not only will I take your sin, I am going to take all the righteousness of which I have accumulated in all my life. And I'm going to credit that into your account. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see you as the sinner you are, but he sees you as the righteous man that I am. And that's just not what, what, what it's true for me. The Bible will teach you that's true for everyone who would trust in him. In fact, the scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll find salvation from beginning to end. I hope you know that, salvation. I hope everyone here in the sound of my voice has placed their faith in Jesus and received the pardon in which he would gladly give you if you would yield your life to him. That's what this supper meal is all about, isn't it? That we would be reminded of what he has done for us. And so even now as we prepare for this meal, my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, may I remind you with words that have been shared in countless churches over many centuries, the Holy Supper which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance. That our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. So in the bread and in the cup, we are reminded of his death. We are reminded of his resurrection. We are reminded of his ascension. And through which all of his work, he has established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted by a holy God and never forsaken by him. We even now silently pray as you prepare your hearts for this supper meal. Our Father and Creator, you are the Almighty and everlasting God. You have given us life, and you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word made flesh for our salvation. For this precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, We praise you and bless you, O our God. And now we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the world. In the joy of his resurrection and the expectation of his coming again, our souls now come to feast on this meal. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.